You're listening to Bethany Radio. Our content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBattleLeroy.com. Heavenly Father, uh, we just come before you one more time, thanking you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to dig into it, to see what it is that you would teach us today um, through your Holy Spirit and through your leading, Father. Pray that the words and the thoughts that uh, come from me today are your words and your thoughts, and that um, you would use them to further your kingdom, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds and our bodies, Lord, to um, reveal what is true, um, to use my my imperfect uh, body up here to further your kingdom and to do your work, Lord. Uh, just use me as your tool. I'm just praying these things in your name. Amen. Let's see that out of the corner of my eye. There we go. Can, can everybody hear me all right? All right. This thing may fall off, so bear with me if it does. Um, so three men are standing in a crowd Music blaring all around them. Uh, and these are men of prominence. They have been handpicked for this position of authority that they are in. And normally it wouldn't be a big deal standing up, but everybody else around them is bound down face to the floor. And there's this golden image that uh, is before them. And they stick out like sore thumbs right now. And everybody around them is going, whoa. What is going on here? And they actually say, hey, king, these men, what are they doing? Music stops, and the king summons these three men in front of him, and they know why they're being summoned. For the law is, whenever you hear this music play, you drop and you worship this golden image. So the king, eyes burning in rage at these three men, that he handpicked for this position of authority, he said, he, you know, the conundrum is, well, what do I do? The law says anybody who does not bow down will be thrown into this furnace and they will be killed. So he gives them one more chance. You have an opportunity. We will play the music one more time. Bow down. A mother... 29 years old, two young kids uh, that she's been blessed to have to raise, gets the diagnosis of cancer. And she fights this battle for the next 11 years. Um, again, giving everything that she has, not knowing what the outcome is going to be. So these last two weeks, uh, we've been focused on God's sovereignty and just his control over everything, whether it's natural disasters, whether it's just life going on in our own families. And Pastor Mike asked me a couple months ago to fill in for him today while he was gone. And you can tell Carrie and I kind of conspired a little bit on what we were going to be sharing today. But I had no idea that Pastor Mike was going to be going these last two weeks the route that he did. So it's really cool seeing the Lord's hand in all of this. So I feel comfortable sharing what it is we'll look at today, knowing that, again, 
He has control over this. I don't. So I want to look at Daniel 3 here, where we're going to start. Um, Tried to lay a little bit of the, the foundation. And we're going to pick up in 16. So Daniel 3, chapter 16, reading through the end. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. The Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. So they were delivered. No harm came to them, and the Lord brought them out of the fire. Now, there's three different things that I want to look at here in this passage. Uh, before I, I do have a couple other areas that we're going to turn to as well. 
in our time together today because it's easy to pick one where we can see a positive out- outcome from uh, this attitude of even if. Let's look at some others as well. So the first thing that I want to look at here in, in this passage is verse 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response. And we've talked a little bit about it already, um, but just highlighting it again. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they were not, no matter what, going to bow down to somebody other than God. Um, Whether it killed them or not, they were not going to sacrifice that. And, you know, we can look at that and we can go, you know, that's great. They were uh, well-educated. They were men that really knew God's word and had this, this relationship with them. Um, but we got to be careful that we don't put all the emphasis on the men that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. It wasn't about them. Now, if we flip back to Daniel 1, it gives us a little bit of the context of who these men were and how they came to this position. So looking at chapter 1, 3 through 5, I'll just read that real quick to give us that background. So, then the king ordered um, Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court, And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. We'll go into six here as well. Now among them, uh, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And those last three, they were renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when, when they were brought into the king's court there. So we can see just that they were handpicked and that there was a lot going for them. They were handsome. They had no defects. They were young. They were educated. Um, kind of that everybody wanted to be them because of how, how well off they were at that point. And the point I'm trying to get to out of all of that is, was there something special about them to God that he chose to save them out of the furnace? You know, all of those attributes that we just listed off, was that why he saved them? I would say no. There wasn't anything special about them that God chose. He just chose to save them. And why? What's the purpose of saving them then if it wasn't because they were so special? Well, let's flip back over to chapter 3 again and verse 28. And we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's response to what just happened there. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. So God used these three men for his glory. He pointed this king to glorify God out of this. The king who was um, dead set on 
being the only one worshipped. He had his golden image. He had the, the music. He had the furnace as kind of his stick for you will worship me. And through, through that um, rebellion against his law, God used it for his glory. Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing the Lord Most High as the one and only God. Now, unfortunately for Nebuchadnezzar, it was short-lived. We can see other passages in Daniel where he goes back. But in this instance, he is pointed to, and he points his, um, the rest of the people under his rule towards that one true living God. Now, as I said, we, we can look at other examples as well. So I'm going to just flip over a couple pages here to Daniel 6. And it's going to be another story that we're pretty familiar with, Daniel in the lion's den. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer in the picture. His son Darius is the ruler now instead. But Daniel is still served well. He's still in the court, and now he's serving Darius. And again, um, Daniel has been put in a, a position of a power and authority along with others, and others in that same position are becoming jealous of Daniel. They don't like how well he is doing, and how much attention he's getting from the king. So they're able to convince the king, um, put this edict into place, that no one is to ask anything of anybody, any god, any man, except for you. And if they do, destroy them. Throw them in the lion's den. And the king, not fully understanding what was going on, because he didn't realize Daniel was praying three times a day uh, to the Lord Most High, said, okay, we'll do that. And the, the other men in power there, they're licking their chops. They're going, sweet. Daniel is going to be gone because we know he's going to continue praying. And we can see in 10 here, uh, chapter 10, in verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 10, get it right. Um, now Daniel knew that the document was signed he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So again, Daniel didn't care. He didn't care that he could be killed for disobeying the king's law that he knew was wrong. He was going to continue serving his God, even if it meant death. And as we go down into uh, verse 14 here, or actually 13, um, these are the other people in authority. They answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. But these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king recognized his heir. He knew Daniel was going to have to, to be thrown into the lion's den and suffer death from that. And despite his best efforts, he had to follow through on it. So now in 16, we see Daniel gets thrown in. Um, and they, they seal the, 
the stone that they roll over top of the, the den. And it's good luck to you, Daniel, overnight. We hope to see you in the morning. Um, and, and then in 20, or actually, let's go to 19. The king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. So Daniel is saved. Again, we can see that Daniel put his trust in the Lord. The Lord saved him. But again, going back to, to that question, was there something special about Daniel that would cause God to save him at that time? And again, my argument would be no. There, there's nothing special about him um, that God found more favor saving him than he would have somebody else. Uh, but again, why? So let's go down to 25 through 27 here. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So again, God has used this, what could have been terrible ordeal, to point others to him for his glory uh, and, and his praise. It's not about us. It's not about Daniel. Not about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's all about the Lord. And again, these are two examples where it turned out great. Sweet. Let's go to one that, again, we're fairly familiar with, but a little bit different twist to it. So we're not going to read all of it. We'd be here all day if we read through the entire book of Job. And I think all of us would like to get out of here a little bit sooner than that. My mouth is going to dry up before I get through all of Job here. Um, But let's flip over there. And I'll just start with Job 1.1. So there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So yeah, pretty good dude. Blameless in the sight of the Lord. And let's, um, you know, no reason why anything bad should have happened to him. He was doing everything right that he was supposed to. But if we flip over now, uh, reading through chapter 1, chapter 2, again, I'm not going to read all of it, but just summarizing it, we see Job loses his family. He loses his wealth and all of the cattle that he had. And he loses his health. And all because God said, it can be so. Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and upright before me. Satan says, well, that's great. You're protecting him. Nothing bad is happening to him. Why wouldn't he bless you? Why wouldn't he be blameless? 
all right, prove me wrong, essentially. God says to Satan. So Satan does his worst. Can't kill him, but he can do pretty much anything else. And and again, we can look in the first couple of, of chapters here to Job's responses. 121. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So a good response. You know, seems like everything is going good. And then chapter 2, 9 and 10. And his wife is telling him, just curse God, get this over with. Why are you putting up with this? And Job said to his wife, do you still hold fast? Or his wife said to Job, sorry. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So again, we've got that response from Job. All right, I can handle this. You know, good and bad. God is good. But then, if we were to read through the next 40 chapters of Job, we get a little bit of a different feeling from him. Lord, why is this going on? Um, crying out to him, whining, um, questioning, what is this that's going on? Why are you allowing this to happen? His friends come in and kind of feed into that as well. You know, obviously you've done something wrong. What is that unconfessed sin that you aren't uh, confessing before the Lord? Um, you know, just kind of continuing to feed into the, the woe is Job. Something is going on here. And Job is able to to ask God as we get towards the end here, you know, why is this happening to me? Why, why, oh, why, oh, why? And the Lord, I, I get a kick out of his response here a couple different times, basically tells him, man up. Put on your big boy pants and man up. Um, I, I should have marked exactly where I, I apologize for that. I, I'll find it here in just a second. All right. So chapter 40, verse 6. And I'll read a little bit from there. The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. Basically, put on your man pants and deal with it. I will ask you, you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? And on and on, God says, all right, are you as good as I am? Are you you God? And obviously the answer is no. And then in 42 here, the first six ver- or, yeah, chapters of that, Job answers the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job recognizes that he was out of line. He's not the one to question God. Why are you letting this happen? Now, God in his mercy and his grace, let him do that. They had that discourse back and forth that, you know, why is this happening? What's going on? But at the end, Job realized, you are God and I am not. Your will will be done, not mine. And again, that as we we look at everything that goes on, God's sovereignty, that I believe is our call to what our response is when things are happening around us, whether it's the good, the bad, the ugly. You are God. I am not. It is your glory that this is all for. It's not about me. And then the final one that I wanted to look at here is in Matthew 26. Again, fairly familiar. Uh, It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And arguably one of the worst... um, injustices, if you will, of of the time where Jesus is betrayed, given a mock trial, and crucified on the cross. This is all leading up to that. And I'm going to start in, excuse me, verse 36 here. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. So again, we see Christ, the night that he knows he's going to be betrayed, pleading before his Father, if this can be taken from me, if this can be at all avoided, please let it be. But... Not because of my will, but let your will be done. Again, Jesus, fully man, fully divine, knowing that it's not about him. He knows the the suffering, the pain, the death that's going to be coming upon him here because of us. And he knows it's going to be painful. It's He's going to be separated from God in that time. And even though he knows how bad it's going to be, he still says, Lord, let your will be done so that you can be glorified. So Christ understood God's big picture plan. Even though in that one, that one moment, um, 
it wasn't going to be enjoyable for him. He, he knew that that big picture was going to need to be fulfilled through what he had to go through. So what does this all mean then for us? You know, it's easy to look at the, the Scriptures and say, yeah, this is what they did. Um, so what? How, how can we apply that? So I guess the, the big points that I want to pull out of this is the first one, God is able. Genesis 1.1. God cre- in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is powerful. He, with his breath, with just speaking it, made everything come to being. Can he not also handle what we're going through? Now, just because he can doesn't mean he will. And that's something that we need to be able to come to grips with. The next one is God has that big picture plan. Um, It's not about us. As much as we like to think, especially from time to time, that we are God's gift to this world, we're not. Literally, that gift was Jesus. And through Jesus, we have that opportunity to put our trust in the Lord, to um, call upon Him as our Lord and our Savior, to have our sins forgiven and to have that life eternal with Him so that this life isn't it. Now, we're still going to go through struggles. We're still going to go through trials and tribulations and sufferings. But that's, that's worth it. You know, it, We're going to be bringing glory to God. We're going to be in His midst because of it. And we are not in control. Um, as much as we like to think that you know, we can plan well enough that um, if I do all of the right steps, that things are going to go the way I want them. Um, my grandfather was a farmer, and he always said farmers were the ones that were the closest to God because you were so dependent upon them. You do everything that you can. You plant when you're supposed to. You use all the correct um, methods for... I'm not a farmer, as you can tell. <laughs> to have as bountiful as a harvest as you can, but we are still so dependent on the Lord for the rain, for the what, for the um, the heat. You know, just tying everything together. We're in so dependent upon Him. And then in the job that I do, there, you know, I, I have learned how much pseudo control I, I like to think that I have. And this has shown me I really don't have a tenth of the, the control I think I do. So dependent on so many other um, variables that I cannot control. So, And it's good that we are not in control. God holds everything together in His hands. And He knows um, what is best. And He knows how this is all going to come together. And then finally... Um, through all of this, we, we saw it in all of the different passages we looked at. God is going to be glorified in this. Philippians 2.9 um, really brings it all together. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that at every tongue and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, it's about glorifying our Father. It's not about us. 
and every need. So going back to where we started with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they chose not to bow their knee uh, out of defiance of the king's order. As we see in Philippians here, there is not going to be that defiance when it comes to the Lord God Almighty. Every knee will bow whether they are a believer or not. And they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and God will be glorified through that. Amen. So let us pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we just um, thank You again for this time to look into Your Scriptures, Lord. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for just your authority over everything, that you are the creator, Lord, and we are your creation, that you um, have everything in your hands and that we can take great comfort in that, knowing that um, your will will be done, that your name will be glorified, and that every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Just pray these things in your name. Amen.